Hello and welcome to a special edition of the SPAC Insider Podcast. This week, SPAC Insider's founder, Christy Marvin, speaks with Niccolo Damasi, CEO of the DMY SPACs. Christy and Niccolo discuss just how much has changed in the SPAC market since late 2021 and why timing will be everything for some teams in 2022. They also get into what kinds of targets the market may be hungrier for in the current climate and when those appetites might begin to turn once again. Will regulation be the next big thing to change SPACs? And what does history say about the kind of cycle we'll be looking at in 2023? Take a listen. All right, well, welcome everybody. Um, we're in luck this week because Nicola Damasi is back for another bonus edition of the podcast. Um, for anyone new here, Nicola joined us about, um, I think a little bit less than three months ago, back in November, to discuss the SPAC market. Um, but while the market was difficult back then, it has gotten substantially more difficult since that time. Uh, it's almost like we jumped from SPAC difficulty level four to difficulty level 10 in the span of about a month. Um, but, you know, it's fortuitous for us that Niccolo is back again to discuss what's going on so he can sort of um, give us some color on the on the current market. Um, but first, by way of background, Niccolo Damasi has completed four SPACs as the chief executive officer of the DMY technology SPACs, um, and that is one through four. The most recent being DMY4, which completed its DSPAC with the company Planet in early December. Um, there's also a fifth DMY SPAC, which is currently out searching for a partner company. Let's let's talk a little bit about the current SPAC market conditions, maybe compared to what they were like at the beginning of December as you were headed to a vote with Planet. Obviously, it was a significantly challenging market back in December, but maybe you can kind of contrast that to now and how and maybe why the market has changed in such a short amount of time and some of the, the dynamics around that that are responsible for that change. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Christy, as always. It's interesting, when I think back on uh, the four deals that we've closed in the last couple years, the environment has sort of followed a uh, an interesting curve up and then sort of right back down. If you follow redem- redemption trends, what you see is that we were the best performing SPAC in both Q3 and Q4 last year from a you know minimal redemption perspective. I think we were at Two and a half percent on INQ, you know, in Q3, and a, and a backdrop of what, probably fifty percent or fifty-five percent on average, and then in Q4, it probably went higher, right? <laughs> so it was seventy or sixty, and and we were even lower at two percent with Planet. Um, you know, we were zero on on DMY one and two, and it and interestingly enough, I would say that of the four transactions, probably the second one, um, you know, which we announced in October twenty and was is voted on, you know in Q1 21 was probably the, the most bullish environment, right? I think we can all agree that in Q1 21, you probably hit sort of Q4, Q1, you probably hit sort of peak sectoral sentiment for, uh, you know, this mechanism for bringing companies public, um, as well as, and this is the second biggest trend we'll talk about today, um, you know, companies going public with great revenue growth stories, but not necessarily uh, as much free cash flow. Uh, as people got accustomed to in, in the sort of public markets of yore. Um, you know, DMY1 was a more challenging environment than DMY2. DMY3, I think, was about on par with DMY1. But DMY4, I agree, was in a territory of significant, uh, you know, sort of sectoral sentiment rotation, not just towards profitability, um, but with a, a general skepticism around, I'd say, the quality of assets that might be using an S4 IPO mechanism. And whilst that does not impact DNY and a number of other high quality sponsors, 
you know, there's no doubt that macros, you know, eventually become micros. Um, and so Q4, uh, you know, 21, and certainly so far what we've seen of Q1 and 22, uh, and there's no doubt tactical problems are becoming strategic problems for a number of SPAC sponsors. Uh, and I think that the rising rates environment that's been signaled for some time uh, has led to a robust rotation of profitability uh, across all, uh, I'd say, uh, stock market segments, but in particular, small cap, right? So you've seen, you know, Google coming off 10%. You've seen Coinbase coming off 50%. Um, you've seen cryptocurrencies pretty much unilaterally going down 50% in most categories. And on average, unfortunately, I feel like even high quality uh, small cap stocks of all mechanisms to go public, S1, S4, direct listing, you know, they're all they're all impacted at the moment closer to 50% than, than 5%. Um, you know, I've spent the last 20 years of my life running public companies. My SPAC sponsor partner, Harry Yu, has been at it for 40. So we're at kind of 60 years together. And we've seen every market correction going back to, you know, Black Monday or whatever it was in 87, uh, when my partner Harry was working at Solomon Brothers, uh, of all places. Um, so, you know, we're familiar with, uh, with market rotations. We predicted this one. So DMY6 has been looking for assets that are profitable growers as opposed to growers uh, for the last quarter. We are cautiously optimistic we will find a profitable grower, not just a grower. Um, and we expect that that's will, where we will be hanging out with the DMY franchise uh, for quite some time. Um, this reminds me from a personal perspective of kind of where small cap markets were in 2009, 10, 11, 12, you know, kind of a decade ago, um, when there was kind of a higher bar for quality to shine through if you're a small cap business, a small cap tech business, and a small, tap, small cap growth company. Um, as people look at the Fed signaling a general rate rise environment, but not quite clarifying when and to how much, I think the choppiness will continue. Right. And so one of the phenomenons that uh, that you've been adept at analyzing, I think, very, very accurately in your newsletter is uh, this is not a SPAC phenomenon so much as a public market phenomenon, so much as a small cap tech phenomenon. Uh, it's impacted S1 IPOs as much as S4. I think it will carry on until you see a clarification, not only in the rate rising environment, but but frankly, in, in Ukraine. I think Ukraine has been really a tangential you know, impact here that leads to this sort of extreme risk off moment for people. And risk off means less tech, less small cap. Uh, it means a lot less of stuff that's not generating free cash flow. Um, and of course it means a lot less on kind of international offices, international exposure in, uh, in some cases. Uh, and so I think the trick for ourselves, any sort of quality SPAC sponsor out there is gonna be shortening the period of time between announcement and close and making sure that you think about not where the markets are when you announce, but where the markets are going to be most likely when you come to a record date for your redemptions uh, and where that stock you know, might be trading uh, in a world of some geopolitical uncertainty, as well as a continued rising rate and yield climate, uh, which you know, has normalized to where things were three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, eight years ago, not three months ago, three quarters ago. Right. Well, it's interesting to bring up timing. And, you know, we, we were talking about it before we started this podcast about how timing is everything. So, you know, with that being said, 
as far as the Fed, I mean, this is obviously a, a pretty challenging year because you've got quantitative easing, you got the Fed trying to trim the balance sheet, you got rising interest rates, you've got the Ukraine. In your mind, if you had to pick when a team should close, because as you're right, it's all about when you close, not necessarily when you announce. When do you see sort of a safe spot <laughs> or safe quarter for specs to do that? Yeah, unfortunately, what, what we do know is it's not this quarter. Right? I mean, it's, not, it's not January, February. I suspect if the if the predictions everyone reads are, you know, March, there's going to be clarification from the Fed. I hope I hope that's the beginning of clarification. I feel like Q2 is going to look a lot better than Q1, uh, particularly if Ukraine could come to a head, you know, or not. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I'm more confident that the Fed clarifies than Vladimir Putin clarifies, right? Because his strategy appears to be destabilization, right? Mm -hmm. and, and destabilization by definition doesn't have a time period on it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but like with most things, including even the First World War, um, once you get used to trench warfare, at some point uh, you come to expect it, right? So um, it, it does feel like there, you know, there will be some kind of you know, normalization of the threat or some kind of, uh, you know, crisis that hopefully is provoked or not in the next, you know, month or two. So that when we get to sort of the spring, people can kind of go, well, look, either he's going to always be hanging out on the border and it's just going to be the new, you know, Berlin Wall is going to be drawn along, you know, the Ukrainian-Russian border um, or not. Um, but uh, look, ultimately, I hope that the Fed can, you know, get through some rate rises and then sort of stop and watch. Mm -hmm. um, because obviously it's not going to help the U.S. economy or anybody's economy if, 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 the, if, if the U.S. Fed, you know, behaves the way, you know, Mr. Putin does and kind of goes, I don't know, we might, we might keep increasing, we might not. I think people do need to have a chance to catch their breath and measure the impact on inflation. Um, unfortunately, you know, when I look at supply chain disruptions, there is a geopolitical element to that. Um, and where China's politics are or, and Russia's are not helping a supply chain untangling. And I, I am a little concerned uh, from a macro perspective that, you know, we get to the middle of the year, um, you could still have plenty of residual effects driving elements of significant inflation in the economy from the supply chain, even though most of the economy does not have this effect going on, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, cars, you know, cars still have a supply. I don't know if you've tried to order a car recently, but like the lead times on these are almost comedic. In some cases, you know, right? I mean, like I've had ordinary, ordinary brands, not luxury government telling me that, you know, could at least where I live in Austin, they're like could be 18 months, could be 20 months. You're like, what are you talking about? Like, no one thinks about a car in 2024. It's like early 2022, you know, kind of thing. So, well, let's see how that all plays out. But the new normal is certainly uh, getting in line and and waiting. Um, and I think what that means for public markets is, I think it's a return to show me the free cash flow. Not even show me the growth and profitability, but show me you can generate free cash flow is going to be my prediction of where markets are going to increasingly be. How hard they keep rotating on that be a, you know, will, will be a question of these trends sort of stabilizing or not. But companies that were burning cash and burning a lot of cash, you know, you've seen those come down. I mean, DraftKings has come down from what, 70, $70 to 20, right? Um, skills is at four or something like that, and they were at 30, right? So that that's way off the table. Um, and so you're then in the zone of, can you be a roughly break-even business and can you grow? What does that look like? Um, you've seen my own companies, you know, Genius Sports Group did an analyst day today, 
um, and at upwardly revised profitability expectations, you know, for 22, 23, 24. Um, and that will take some, some time to get digested. Um, but, you know, my businesses are certainly rotating with the times and listening to investor feedback, uh, as well as a geopolitical environment that prizes good old fashioned entrepreneurs and good old fashioned managers going, the point of this business, you know, is to not always save the world. Sometimes in the case of planet is to save the world and make money, but some of these businesses just need to generate, you know, a, a good return on invested capital sooner than later. So this conversation is naturally going to lead then to talk about redemptions. So do you think that sort of rotation is responsible for what we're seeing with the very, very high redemption rates? Um, in fact, in, I was just looking before we got on this in January, the current average is 82%. The lowest uh, redemption rate so far this month in January was 35.8%. That was with Core Scientific, which was a uh, simple XPDI, power and digital infrastructure. But everything else is averaging, you know, 80s and 90% redemptions. Maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about, about why, why that's sort of happening. I mean, we, liquidity is certainly an issue. Well, it's two things, right? It's, it's liquidity is an issue in a world of risk off. That's the first thing. The second unfortunate phenomenon is people that have a redemption vote in Q1 um, have a backdrop of even fabulous companies going from $20 to 10. And so they sit there and they go, well, you know, if that's what happened the last, you know, 90 days, 180 days. And by the way, I'm not talking about S4 IPOs. There's a lot of S1 IPOs that have gone from 20 to 10. Um, and so with that as the backdrop, people are saying, I only want liquidity but they're saying, you know, why should I risk getting cut in half? I don't need this, right? Not this quarter, not right now. And so I do think this is a particularly bad few months where you have the, the sort of triple whammy of geopolitical and rate rises. You have, you know, redemptions last quarter not being a helpful signal. And then you have the stock price performance as an extra, you know, sort of punch in the stomach. That's not going to go on. Right. So let's be clear. Stuff that's been gone from 20 to 10 is very unlikely to go from 10 to five. Stuff that's gone from 10 to five is very unlikely to quality company go to two. I'm not saying there won't be a vicious debate played out in high volume trading as bears, bulls, long term, short term, all debate, you know, what that sort of return on investment capitalism win. Um, but fortunately, there is a natural bottom that happens when things get cut in half and valuations start to get silly in the other direction. You know, there's no reason for NVIDIA to trade at 100 times earnings. There's no reason to trade at 50 times earnings, but at some point, you know, 25 times earnings, you know, whatever it is, things start to sort of go, well, this is now a value stock <laughs> with a lot of growth, a lot of strategic value, a lot of, you know, ecosystem value, and actually a lot of profitability, right? So in a quarter or two, if you're announcing deals and, you know, in Q2 and you're closing deals in Q3, I would hope by the middle of the deal that you're, you're looking backwards at stock price performance that's stable and you're looking backwards at rate rises that's stable and I, and I stabilize and I hope that in this late spring, early summer, you start to see a rate rise environment, an inflation environment that is moderating, right? I mean, there's no doubt, you know, Christy, as we all know that if rates go up three times and in the summer people are going last year, this time was 6.8 and we're at seven. Mm -hmm and there's a war in the Ukraine, that's not going to be good. But if, you know, inflation is at four or even five and a solution has occurred with a new wall or something <laughs> or whatever it is in Ukraine, I think people might start to go, okay, I mean, it's not great, 
but I would hope that your best case scenario of 35% average of 80 becomes average of 35 and best case scenarios, you know, back where DMY was in Q3 and Q4 of 2%. There's a, there's a lot of money on the sidelines, right? So the, the, the corollary of huge redemptions, a huge risk off and huge selling is there's a bunch of people putting cash in the bank. So, I mean, if, what does a SPAC that is sort of up against the wall and has to have a vote in Q1 supposed to do? Uh, I mean, obviously everybody's getting backstops. Pipe market is all but shut. So these backstops are sort of like backstops at the last resort. What, what is a company to do? Uh, how, if, if you were to give advice to a company, what would you say, especially if they didn't have the luxury of being able to push the vote off? Yeah, well, so people try pushing votes off as far as they can. That's a logical thing to do. Uh, and that is happening to some extent. There are people, look, the workout, Christy, that you and I have seen the last nine months, six months, nine months, it's going to continue. So people are repricing on the road. People are attempting different. I mean, look, there's been unfortunately a move for pipe capital and backstop capital has moved up the tax, up the cap table. Right. So there's been convertibles happening and debt happening, all sorts of stuff. We haven't done that and had to do that. And I hope I hope we never will need to do that. Um, but we realize that, you know, macros become become micros. And I expect that things will be challenging for the next you know three to six months. Um, I, I think that there's no doubt that uh, people are going to see some suboptimal outcomes this quarter. And they may well see some suboptimal outcomes, outcomes next quarter. Um, it's unfortunately part of the Darwinian process of uh, only the strongest sort of uh, succeeding, if you will. And if I was sort of sort of jokingly saying last time I was on here three months ago, only the top 10 teams are going to survive as quality SPAC sponsors, that, that's kind of more, more like the top three <laughs> now or the top four or five. But, you know, it's a it's a narrowing herd. I mean, when you know, when Gore's had 90 something percent redemptions and they're a good team. And they've done a lumber them and they've got a committed fund to backstop stuff. I mean, that is sign of the times, right? And so <clears throat> I think valuation is the big fix for what it's worth. I think valuation is a big fix. Yeah. Um, there is a clearing price. That clearing price may well have been chopped in half from where things were 90 days ago. But I think people have to go and look at that. And they've got to tilt the balance of growth in favor of value. Uh, and the harder, you know, the further you are from free cash flow, I think the more you're going to have to tilt that to get people to, to, to look at that, right? Um, I think people are going to run their companies different. Christy, I think that's going to happen. People that were saying, hey, we're going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to break even in 2025 and generate EBITDA in 28 are going to have to look at, you know, a new business plan, which is like, you're going to spend less money. You're going to have to get near, you know, within spitting distance of break even a lot sooner. And that's the other thing that's going to happen is people are going to be changing the value equation, the for, you know the forecast of how we run the business. And some of these businesses, you know, will have to be re-IPO'd, uh, you know, virtually, literally or, or figuratively, uh, you know, as part of that process. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, the last time we spoke, we were talking about how there's just so, so many SPACs uh, that had IPO'd in 2021. Um, we have almost 600 now out searching. But interestingly, what I've been hearing a lot lately from multiple sides of the fence, meaning from sponsors and from bankers, is there is a pretty active market right now for, you know, what I like to call lightly used SPACs, <laughs> meaning um, some of these first time teams that had IPO'd, they just don't want to deal with the SPAC anymore. And they're trying to sell it to more uh, experienced sponsor teams. It's the pre-owned market, uh, Christy. I like yeah, the, yeah. the pre-owned <laughs> pre market, a thousand miles 
500 miles, you know, whatever that is. Um, I think very few of those are going to trade, uh, you know, like a Ferrari or Lamborghini <laughs> in the pre-owned market. They're probably going to be a lot more uh, like uh, my fellow Fiat's and Italian, you know, it's a sort of lower end, uh, you know, Italian cars probably. But, um, you know, I, I hear that at the same time when I think about that for quality teams, you know, why do you need to do that? So like, why is it, why does the quality team want to take over something that's a busted flush? semi-busted well, i'll tell you why uh, when you, you can do your own well i'll tell you why because a lot of the ones that came out last year had significantly better terms or better structures you know like for someone to ipo right now they'd have to do a sure. half warrant overfund sure. it uh sure. maybe throw in a right but they can get a, a lightly used one on uh spac vana <laughs> for with a third of a warrant and 100 percent and maybe uh still have 12 to 15 months left of uh, life uh life on it yeah, I mean, I, I I see how there is a clearing price there somewhere, but I'm also I'm living proof that quality teams don't have to do unnatural things. I mean, our our last IPO and whatever was Q4 last year was our most oversubscribed deal, um, and we did nothing unnatural on the overfunding and the rights and all that stuff. We've never done that, and we'll never do that. I'd rather wait to not do one if we have to do that, uh, because at the end of the day, you know. You got to be competitive with the S1 IPOs, right? And these people that are sort of wandering around with, you know, ridiculously expensive things. Like you're just not going to get a quality company. You're kind of exacerbating the problem. That's an interesting phenomenon. I'm not, I'm not part of uh, that because I've got, you know, uh, my own ability to raise money on, on sort of better terms. But that, that's an interesting comment on, of course, what's going to happen to anybody that has IPO'd um, with more onerous terms, right? So that's going to, that's going to kick the can uh, for those people to transact if they're competing with people. On the on the pre-owned basis with better structures, you know, sort of from six months ago, kind of thing, right? So, look, I I maintain what you and I talked about nine months ago, which is at the end of this year, is going to be a fascinating reckoning uh, of all of these things bundling up. And what's going to happen is, you know, the can will get kicked to the point whereby the more onerous things will become zombies, mm -hmm. and everyone will redeem and they'll time out, and there'll be a bunch of these zombies running around with, you know, non-viable, uh, you know, kind of dilutive structures and everything gets pushed down right so you know to some extent i, I hate to say this but like <clears throat> goldman sachs and probably morgan stanley have picked off the teams and deals in the spac market that used to go to deutsche and city and in, in five years ago when there was no goldman sachs in the spac ipo market right and so they get crammed down and then they go and cram you know cowan down and then cowan go, goes and does things you know like nicola where <laughs> you know, it was not so good, right? So, um, so that that process will happen with SPAC teams and SPAC structures as well, right? Where quality will rise to the surface. Great teams will, you know, will have to do less profitable deals at some level, which means that not great teams will do not profitable deals, and not great teams below that will will be gone, right? Mm. It's kind of the way financial markets work. True. Well, you know, you, you, you did sort of allude to the traditional IPO process. So, so maybe let's talk about that. You know, SPACs do get a bad rap, in the, particularly in the media. Um, but, you know, if you look at the traditional IPO, they're not doing great either. And they, they actually haven't for a while. Um, if, you, if you actually chart how they perform over time, you know, once you get past that 180-day lockup, you know, usually price tends to degrade. And um, if you bought the IPO at issuance, if you don't sell right away, you're usually in trouble. But like, you know, even if we looked at some of the, like the higher profile IPOs that 
went public this year, like Oscar, it's down 84%. Rent the Runway, down 75%. Uh, Coinbase is even down nearly 40%. And yet SPACs seem to unfairly get a lot of heat. Why do you think that is? So look, first of all, I think your analysis, your newsletter on this is the finest I've seen in the market. And I'm glad that uh, that somebody is looking at this dispassionately. I mean, I you know, I think people like Jim, Jim Cramer don't look at the data, don't know the data, aren't in the data, and are frankly, you know, completely unhinged on this topic, right? Um, and so it sort of takes a quasi-religious stance on this, right? And does, doesn't want to listen to the data, right? Let's remember that SPACs are the new kid on the block. And uh, Morgan Stanley didn't do SPACs for a long time, right? And they lost a lot of market share to SPAC IPOs, and then they got religion and had what I can only describe as a Damascene conversion and all of a sudden they're doing SPACs, right? Um, if you go back in time, you know, I was here for the dot-com boom, as were you, and you know, I can remember there being some problems with the IPO markets, right? I can remember the Enrons and Worldcoms and, you know, various things that, you know, took out ads at Super Bowls that had no business, right? So there, there is a natural regulatory evolution and a natural sort of caveat emptor that happens here. Um, and I think the SEC absolutely should be regulating this with a, you know, with a, with a convergent, asymptotically convergent path toward traditional IPOs. Um, you know, the, S the SEC is looking into that. Goldman Sachs uh, already treats and has for, you know, for a year and a half, their SPAC IPOs and sponsor parties, they underwrite kind of the same as any other IPO process. So I can tell you our deals have huge amounts of scrutiny. We hire third-party firms for diligence. We take plenty of time. Goldman goes to their committee repeatedly. Um, and so we know we're getting quality. They're getting quality. They're stamping the name on it, as are we. And we are all you know, locking arms and being long-term greedy with quality assets that regardless of you know, where the market's been the last 90 days, I think in the next three quarters and three years, I think all of our companies are going to perform you know, to plan. What the market decides that's worth changes. You know, All of our guys are going to hit meet and beat guidance. They continue to do that. Um, and I'm very, very optimistic that, you know, value will shine through uh, slowly but surely. I think there has been, uh, it's been easy to pick on SPAC IPOs because there's been certainly some bad actors. There's been some tier three teams and probably tier three underwriting quality in some cases. Um, and uh, there was probably some easy money that happened about a year ago. But when money gets expensive, and I've spent most of my career going through these cycles, uh, quality comes to the surface. Everyone's more careful. Profit margins, you know, change everywhere. And whilst people keep deploying capital, they save their money for the must-have opportunities. And so this sort of natural Darwinian evolution uh, will force, is forcing, will force, is forcing, and continue to force discipline on everybody uh, in the value chain. And I think you'll you'll see my prediction, you know, 18 months from now, is that people will start to talk about. S1 IPOs the same way that I have, the same way that you and I have for some time. It needs to have the same quality. Uh, it needs to have the same factors. People need to beat numbers. Um, and, you know, there's been plenty of S1 IPOs that miss numbers, you know, in their first year. It happens all the time. There have been plenty of companies that have tried to de-SPAC when they've changed numbers. And, you know, the big difference, honestly, uh, you know, Christy, is during the 180 days of a lockup, um, you know, people can't redeem in an S1 IPO. And so when people miss numbers, you're, you're shafted. If you miss numbers in a three-month or six-month DSPAC, you get your money back. 
Yeah. Like yeah. it's way better for investors, right? It's way better. And this is one of the, this is one of the analyses that does not make it through is you pointed out in your newsletter, absolutely rightly, that if you're a retail investor, by the time you buy one of, one of these hot IPOs, you know, you could be 50% over the offer price. You're then very likely to end up 50 to 80% down from when you got in, uh, which means you're, you're, you're at a huge disadvantage to buying a stock potentially during a DSPAC at 9.95 or 9.99 um, and getting the same price or a better price in some cases than a pipe investor. The, the institutions that are in a SPAC trust account get to watch you know, three to six months of an SEC review process of an S4 and companies coming out and reporting you know, their first earnings call, sometimes more than one, to hear your timing. Um, and if you don't like where that trends, you know, no harm, no foul. So there's a lot of pros, right, that don't get reported in the SPAC IPO process. And I think that you know, fewer, bigger, better teams, fewer, bigger, better you know, companies and processes are gonna go into uh, SPAC IPOs in the coming two years. And you will see, as I've said to you previously, you know, a moderation in the market share. I think we were over 50% of all IPOs or S4s charging towards you know, a majority. Um, I think it'll settle down at you know, a quarter, a third, you know, something like that at an actual rate. Um, and it has a really valuable role to play, uh, even though that role will not look the same as it did a year ago, a year from today. Yeah, you know, it's funny, I, there was a, a recent article, I can't remember who wrote it, but, you know, they were sort of breathlessly talking about how the, the recent Canter deal that had their vote um, had been trading so poorly, and it was down like 40%. And I was like, yeah, but 99% redeemed, not like literally only 1% of those people. And it was probably an error, someone probably just forgot to check a box. Like everybody redeemed at 10. <laughs> Nobody lost money. They had 99% redemptions. No, spot spot on. That is not reported by anyone. Like yeah. no harm, no foul. Like this, you know, some of these companies are ending up with, you know, $10 million, you know, <laughs> you know, in the bank, right? And and a listing. And and they have a challenge on their hands, but the investors are being institutions are being are being protected. Um, and retail is being protected because you don't have to wait for a pop to get in. You get the same information as everybody else. Watch the earnings reports during the DSPAC and decide what you're going to do. And frankly, for retail, you know, during that DSPAC period, these stock prices hang out usually between, you know, 950 and 1050. Some of them go to 12. They never go below 950, 970 because there's always ar arbitrageurs who can buy at 970, redeem at 10. And so the great thing about this, in my opinion, is retail gets the same in price as other institutions. Both institutions and retail get to watch the DSPAC, what's going on. Both get to basically make a decision, right? If you're retail, you can't redeem, but you can still sell at 990, 995 to you know, an arbitrageur who will then go and redeem. By the way, uh, you, know, you mentioned Jim Cramer. I don't know if you saw, but there's a Twitter account that tracks Jim Cramer's recommendations <laughs> and they've created an index out of it. It's doing terribly, by the way, <laughs> um, but it's a very funny account. I'll send it to you after. Oh, but, I, I have no doubt, right? I yeah. mean, come on, I'm, I'm sure he's he's probably predicted nine of the last, you know, five recessions. And I'm gonna guess that like with everyone who's a pundit, you know, on TV, people, you know, people get uh, TV shows because they're loud, not because they're right. That's true on all topics, you know, political, economic, professional, <laughs> whatever, you, whatever you name it, right? 
Yep, for sure. But I did want to bring up one other quick thing before we kind of move off the topic of IPOs, and that is regulation, right? So there has been sort of this suggestion from the SEC, particularly Gensler, about making SPACs more IPO-like as far as things like, um, you know, the use of projections and liability to underwriters and advisors. If that were to come about, how do you see that affecting the SPAC market? Yeah, I think it's already coming about slowly but surely by virtue of underwriters cinching up the bar and plaintiffs getting creative, right? So regardless of the SEC, you're seeing plaintiffs get plenty creative. There's a whole, you know, it's the US, right? So mm-hmm. it's like the death taxes of lawyers, uh, are things you can't avoid, right? And so you, you've, got, you've got people in creating all sorts of mini cottage industries, uh, you know, chasing after DSPAC and SPAC transactions across the board. I, I think that accountability is important. I think that there is accountability already by virtue of the redemption process uh, and by virtue of the fact that the SEC has already slowed down the process dramatically in the past 12, 18 months, right? When they, when they started with the warrant revaluations, it was kind of the beginning of, I'd say doubling, if not in some cases, tripling the DSPAC period and scrutiny on, on the S4, right? Um, and so that is giving people more time to watch. The SEC is getting pickier. I think retail and, and public market institutions are getting pickier. Um, you know, if you go too far along the chain of liability on forecast, people just won't put forecasts in, which you know ultimately may be fine. Uh, that's what happens in the S one, you know, business. And if you don't put forecasts in, that's fine. It'll it'll be you know you'll be looking at companies' historics, um, and there will be a further rotation to what we've been talking about, which is growers' profitability, profitable growers, free cash flow, uh, and businesses with, with track records that are projectable. Well, let's talk maybe a little bit about. But but by the way, SPACs in that environment will still survive because, you know, as a Sarah Fryer liked to point out correctly for Nextdoor, you know, there's a lot of cases where the dilution and the total cost is lower, depending on the ratio of pipe to trust, you know, what what underwriters are doing, what lawyers are doing, what SPAC sponsors are doing, right? So, it, it is it is by no means a sort of fait accompli. Um, that if there were to be liability on forecast and no forecast, that all of a sudden there's no SPACs. I don't believe that'll happen at all, actually. I think sponsorship, for what Harry, you and Nicola DeMossi do uh, at our size and our stage, we add a tremendous amount of value as board members of our companies, you know, mentoring and coaching CEOs and CFOs who've often never taken the company public before because we've done it 25 times. Um, that value will be, will be the same, right? And so I think we will, we, in our size zone, we're very confident we will get to keep going. You know, in, in the $10 billion transaction size, I, I think that is probably where, you know, you'll get the most, uh, you know, elimination or reduction uh, in the amount of SPAC sponsoring going on relative to alternatives. Really? So, um, so that's interesting you bring up that size because I recently spoke with Harry Sloan um, and he's got his spinning eagle structure. Sure. I don't know if you've gotten a look at that. Um, in registration right now that he'd like to get approved and essentially functions like a like a private equity fund where he can deploy not all of the capital at the same time but you know as he sees fit as he comes across you know different transactions so he can do multiple transactions within one spec vehicle do you like that structure are you, are you more of like keep the structure simple or are you um, curious about that kind of inf- innovation and because that obviously he is big game hunting um, now, granted, the Eagle team has a lot of experience. That's obviously a little bit different than, say, a new team without any spec experience. But yeah, they have a lot of experience. You know, they still had over fifty percent redemptions on, you know, on Ginkgo, right? 
Um, and so I, I think the same trends on provability, free cash flow, profitability are going to play out. Look, um, the time it's taken them to get Spinning Eagle approved because it's still not approved. I think it's been going for six months. Mm-hmm. You know, they could have raised two or three. <laughs> so respect. Okay, so so I, I think it's an interesting you know intellectual process to sort of try and push you know the boundary somewhere. But you know you could have written an article nine months ago about Spinning Eagle, and I think people did uh, in, in some cases, right? So do I think they'll be successful? I have no idea. Do I think being able to take one SPAC and chop it up into four or five SPACs? I, I think, you know, there's some modest synergies to that. If you can achieve that, which is why they're probably carrying on, but recognize that it's not a private equity fund. They can't deploy capital at will and follow on rounds and do whatever they want. Um, they have to sort of, I, I believe they have to sort of do, you know, kind of individual transactions. You can't sort of go and refund something kind of thing, you know, at, at whatever capital structure you want, whenever you want until it approved the fat lady hasn't sung, you know, kind of thing as they say on these things. Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting. I mean, I I, uh, I did kind of buy into what he was saying, which is that you know sometimes you come across a company and you know you've raised let's call it four or five hundred million uh, in trust, and they don't they don't need that much, but you still want to do the transaction. You know, wouldn't it be nice if you could kind of tailor the amount of money that the company needs to how much you have? You know, you didn't have to use all of it in one shot. So I kind of get that. Yeah, kind of. In a world of higher redemptions, is a different different equation entirely. <laughs> Right, right. So, you know, it's if you're at 50% right. redemptions, uh, you know, you're still going to need all of it, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. Right, right. right. So, so yeah, I guess the rub on that would be like, what if you raise this $5 billion funds that you could use at will, but like everybody redeems on the first vote? <laughs> then what do you do? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So, well, I, I think it's going to play out. I don't think, even if they get this approved, I don't think the whole world moves in that direction. In a, in a stroke anytime soon, because also because you have to convince investors to tie up capital. So you may end up having to give them more of those unnatural things you were, you were talking about half an hour ago to get mm-hmm. them to tie up for longer and longer, right? Right, right. Um, all right, well, you know, final topic, 2023. And by the way, the reason I bring up 2023 is because I, I, I read an article, I think it was on Tuesday, and they were talking about how the second year of a president's first term is always terrible for the stock market. We're kind of living through that right now. But the takeaway was that the third year is always like spectacularly good, uh, mostly because you know they're you're starting the election cycle for their next term and they kind of throw a bunch of goodies at the market hoping to win votes. Plus, by then we'll probably be through or at least partly through quantitative easing. We would have already gotten used to interest rates having already you know been hiked. Um, hopefully, Ukraine is done. So 2023, in my mind, could potentially be another good SPAC year. I don't know. Have you, have you thought that far ahead? I mean, are IPOs that come about, let's call it the third quarter of this year, are they setting themselves up to, you know, quote unquote, time that announcement and completion for like a very good 2023? You know, I would like to think so. I mean, I, I, I sort of tend to believe that for quality teams, quality underwriters and quality companies, uh, they will still be able to get things done throughout the year. And I do believe this is a speed bump, not a stop sign. Um, you know, I just, I just don't, I don't feel that. So here's the great thing. Um, rising rates and vast redemptions are nothing like what happened in 2008 and 9 with a vast delevering bad debt problem. People are getting their money back, right? So that means all these institutions who redeem have a bunch of cash in the balance sheet and they're waiting to deploy it. And that's why, you know, I said half an hour ago, like at some point, People are looking for a way to come back and they're going to have to get a lot more yield 
if rates go up in the next three or four or five, six months than they did uh, a year ago, right? So they may have, they're gonna have to come back into the market, you know, in Q4, Q3 next year, looking for juicier growth opportunities, right? And so I think you're correct. There will be some, not a full reversion, there will be some reversion back to, okay, I wanna see profits, but I don't wanna see no growth. I wanna see some, you know, little more growth uh, and I'm willing to see, you know, a little bit, a little bit less on the free cash flow to sort of get get the stick bent in that, in that direction. I think, look, I think tech companies are going to do well throughout all of this. You know, DMY looks for all weather companies. Uh, you know, we look for business to do well regardless of the macro, as I've said before: recession, COVID, lockdown, inflation. All of our businesses have big secular trends. I mean, gaming does better in lockdown than not lockdown, and uh, and it's it's the cheapest per hour entertainment you can get out there. So. I think, you know, no matter what happens to the economy, you know, RSI will do well, Genius will do well, uh, you know, quantum computing is a massive 10 year, 20 year, 100 year trend. It's doing great, you know, great things as it is. And Planet Labs for us at Satellite Data, same thing, like it's just going to get used by more people. ESG is going to become more important. Global warming is not going away. Um, and, and governmental, you know, sort of focus on this is, is increasing as are large institutions like, you know, BlackRock. Um, so our businesses all have great themes. And I think the truth will out. Um, and the truth sometimes takes an extra year, might take an extra couple of years. There are people who won't wait for that, Christy. I won't kid you. There are people saying, you know, the people that are getting marked to market and saying like, hey, my average hold period is three weeks, three months at most. I'm not in this for three quarters. Mm-hmm. All those people are out of the market, right? All the fast money people, I think, are out of the market. But of course, that just creates a juicier buying opportunity for everybody who subscribes uh, to what, you know, Warren Buffett's been doing for the last, you know, 50, 60 nearly 70 years. Right. And it also, as you mentioned earlier, weeds out the weaker sponsor teams, right? And so theoretically, what should be left are the are the stronger ones, the stronger teams, right? Yeah, stronger companies. And I'll say the same thing I said, not, you know, three months ago, and I said nine months ago, which is you have no business, you know, going public. If you can't forecast, if you, you know, have a business plan that is, you know, frankly, you know, overly optimistically pitched, if you can't meet your numbers and you're going to change your numbers, whether it's an S1 or an S4, you should not be going public. And I think everybody who's been cheering on some excess you know, optimism, uh, and you mentioned some of the S1 IPOs that have done that, you know, it's going to naturally correct the same way that uh, I think there's been some people, frankly, Christy, who've been trading blockchain currency and hot SPAC IPOs as if they're sort of the two asset classes that enable the Robin Hood generation to kind of make free money. Mm-hmm. And it has been fascinating to me to watch people on Twitter going like, my stock's down in a day. And I'm like, nobody said these investments were for a day or <laughs> for a week. Like, you know, I, I remember 99 and 98 and something like there, there were people quitting their jobs in the late 90s going like, I don't need my job. I have the market, you know, like, you know, like things go up 10% in a day, you know, sometimes, right? Um, that doesn't obviously, you know, that is not the basis of sustainable you know, living or anything, right? So anyone who is investing on the basis of it only goes up to the right, that's, you know, you're, you're guaranteed 10% up per week. Of course, that was never you know, going to sustain, that never sustains in markets and you don't have a right to that. Like no one owes you a living on that one, right? So buy quality companies that you're prepared to hold for years, not days. And then the debate takes place in between. The de- debate takes place in the months and the quarters between the people who are here for years and the people who hoped they were here for days. Beautifully said. And 
we should probably stop there. <laughs> so um, I really appreciate you coming by again. As always, it's a, it's a pleasure talking to you and uh, can't wait to talk to you next quarter. <laughs> Absolutely, Krithi. Always a pleasure. Always enjoy it. Thank you for your analysis and insight. Uh, you do our entire sector a, a great favor. I hope Jim Cramer reads it. You know, we should send it to him or at least tweet it at him. <laughs> <Daily>. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.